I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're we're a a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. For the past five seasons, we focused on dirty conspiracies, exciting adventures, and alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And for season six, we're focusing on women and alcohol. The often untold or forgotten stories of women who changed history. We're so glad you found us. Make sure to follow us on social media at a tap on the wrist for updates and pictures from each episode. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Okay, so this season we're focusing on women and their effects on alcohol. Mm-hmm. But my story today is the effects of alcohol on a woman. Okay. <laughs> um, but her story is really important even though I have no idea who she is. Like, I had never heard of her. Uh-huh. Um, uh, her name, her stage name is Lucha Reyes. Uh, and okay. she was a very, very famous Mexican pop star. Oh. Um, but her story, as I was writing it and researching it, is so parallel to, like, many American musicians uh-huh. that we know their stories. Um, but she has some other things in there that we'll talk about. Okay. So, Lucha was actually born Maria de Luz Flores Aceves. There's a lot of Spanish words in this story. Okay. <laughs> I'm apologizing now. Just a blanket apology. So, she was born on May 23rd of 1906 in Jalisco, Mexico. Um, she was born four years before the outbreak of the Mexican Revolution. So, that was a lot of her childhood um, was during this wartime. Okay. Um, but following the Amer- the American or the American Revolution, no. do you know how many times this week I've studied the American Revolution and said it because I'm taking a class on it that it came out so naturally? But following the Mexican Revolution, um, women in Mexico claimed a lot of equal rights and independence, mm-hmm. um, which prior to this time they hadn't. Yes. But similar to what happened to women in the American Revolution, it happened to women in the Mexican Revolution, too. They took jobs for husbands who were fighting, and, you know, so all of a sudden the men came home and were like, hey, women can do things, too. Yeah. Let's <laughs> give them some rights. So in, like, the workplace, lots of equal rights were found, um, but in society there was still a lot of, like, female repression mm-hmm. and expected gender norms. And one of these uh, leads all the way up into, like, the 1930s, um, women were not allowed to drink outside of the home. Wow, my story has so many parallels to the beginning of the story. Okay. <laughs> but um, it's in Australia. A okay. different, different country. <laughs> um, and it was known that, like, Mexican cantinas were only for men. Mm-hmm. Proper women didn't visit them. Um, and this is going to be one barrier that Lucha will break. Uh, so we're going to get into her career. How do we always do this? I feel like somehow we almost always pair stories really well. You'll see why I say that later. (laughs) Um, So as I mentioned, the Mexican Revolution, uh, women had more rights, but it was also a time following the revolution. There's lots of nationalism in Mexico, and there's kind of this renaissance of like art, painting, literature, film, Uh uh, and music. And Lucha's family moves from their smaller town to Mexico City, um, and Lucha becomes very involved in singing. Mm-hmm. And she starts in 
a church choir at the Iglesia de Carmen in Mexico City. Um, and her family was not very wealthy, so much so that by the age of 10, she had dropped out of primary school to start work to bring money um, home. But like her way of getting out of all of that was to sing in the church choir. Mm-hmm. And she was really good at singing, very good at singing. Uh, by her early teens, she was singing, um, being invited to like the Capitol to sing. Oh, wow. Um, and at the time, it says that she sang a lot of like revolutionary songs uh-huh. and like anthems for the country. Um, and performed in visiting circuses as, like, a singer when they came. And so that's how she made a lot of money for her family was by singing um, out and about across Mexico City. Uh, At the age of 15, she was noticed for her voice, and she was asked to tour in California, um, and they brought her to the United States, where she kind of became, like, this small hit on the Mexican-American entertainment circuit in Mm -hmm. California. She she's only fifteen at the time, so it's right around nineteen twenty. The United States is going through a we we know what the United States it's a good time to yeah. be in America in nineteen twenty. So she decides to start to study voice and take lessons to become even better at her her art. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of where she becomes like very famous in California in the Hispanic communities because she was amazing. It's during this time that she's in America studying voice when she meets a journalist named Gabriel Navarro. Um, They got married very quickly after they met and it wasn't a very happy marriage. Oh no. I know. (laughs) There are reports that she was the victim of domestic violence. other reports and it's it's there's a lot of like conflicting myths about her life mm-hmm. because it was like early enough that there weren't great record keeping of like pop stars and yeah. a lot of it takes place in America and she was not an American citizen so there's just not a ton of records about her life so there's some conflicting stories but um some stories say she was a victim of domestic violence um it is known that she did get pregnant and lost her baby. Some say it was like a normal miscarriage. Others say it was a result of her husband beating her. Um, but that miscarriage did cause her to become sterile and she'll never have any kids from that point on. Um, because of the miscarriage, she does divorce Gabriel Navarro. And in 1924, she returns to Mexico they say that the failure of this relationship had like a drastic influence on her. And it's reported that it's this relationship that starts like her psychic agony and her like spiral with alcoholism. Oh boy. Yes. Oh, this poor girl. So after returning to Mexico, um, she continues her craft. Um, she has a very wonderful like soprano voice. And she becomes very well-known throughout Mexico um, as, like, a radio-era star. She's invited to perform on, like, live radio shows. Um, and she is just, like, making her name in Mexico. Uh, she kind of, like, rubs shoulders with the likes of, like, Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. And, oh, yeah. Like, like she's super famous. She's very famous okay. in Mexico at the time. Yeah. 
1925, she's invited um, to go on a European tour uh, with the Orchestra Tipica Mexicana and Juan Torblanco. Um, again, names we don't know, but I'm sure at the time they were very well known. Right. And this is one of the first kind of Mexican music tours across Europe. It was not a type of music that many in Europe were exposed to. Mm-hmm. So it was a big honor for her to be invited. So she prepared and they, they left on tour, but the, court, the tour gets cut short um, when they reach Germany. Uh, many say there's two reasons why the tour gets cut short. One is that everyone was very unprepared for the harsh winter that they arrived in Berlin. Um, and many people developed colds, including Lucha. Mm-hmm. Um, and her bad cold then turned into a throat infection. Oh, that's not good for a singer. Right. And it was just getting progressively worse and she couldn't get better. And so she chose to leave the tour leave, right. and go home. But then there are other myths that say um, that it wasn't the result of a throat infection. It was the result of her nonstop drinking and partying that caused Juan Torblanco to end her tour early Uh, and to send her home. But again, no one really knows. The only story that seems to like be the same in all of the stories is that after she is told she's no longer on tour and she has to go to Mexico, she has no money to buy a plane ticket. And, um, Plane ticket? Yeah, I guess it would be a plane ticket in the 1930s. She has no way, maybe a boat. A boat, yeah. I know she does take a boat home, but I don't know how they got there in the first place. Anyways. A boat ticket. So she has no money for her ticket home. Okay. And what happens is that her, uh, she can't sing. So some of her friends who are on tour, like, went and moonlighted at night in, like, different clubs trying to save enough money to send Lucha back home. Well, it's nice of them to To Mexico, do. yes. So the only positive aspect of this tour was that they were able to record in the first half of the tour, and um, it was her first record that had ever been recorded, and it also introduced Mexican music to European audiences on like a wide scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's a positive of the tour. (laughs) But like, how did she run out of money? Was it because of the drinking and partying? Probably. she does make it home to Mexico, but okay. for nearly two years, she kind of lays low. No one hears from her. She's not performing. Mm-hmm. No one really knows what's going. And then she does kind of make a dramatic return, but her voice has changed considerably. She's no longer a soprano. Her voice is very, like, husky and edgy, and, like, she can't go and sing the type of music she had been singing anymore. So she's got to change her her thing. So she changes her thing, and she, for the first time, or she goes and starts to sing the music of, like, cowboys, Mexican cowboys, and cantina music. Okay. Which was very much a men's genre at the time. It's like mariachi bands, mm-hmm. and it's called ranchera music, and everything up to that had been very instrumental, and if there were vocals, they were male vocals. Okay. So for her to come into it, people were like, what is she doing? I mean, get it, girl. Yeah. <laughs> you claim your space. Um, but she was, again, very good at it. Like, uh-huh. just because her voice changed, she could still sing. Yeah. She had to sing a different type of music. So uh, she starts singing this music. 
demolishing kind of those gender norms. Mm -hmm. And by doing this, she was showing how independent as a female she was, which was kind of frowned upon at the time. So she was going into cantinas and singing mariachi music. And um, I think I talk about a little bit, maybe, oh, maybe it's right here. Um, Like she was kind of known for always like having alcohol on stage with her and like just, she was a little brash. She was a little over the top. And like people people at the time couldn't handle it. Um, it's also rumored that she was bisexual and dated both men and women, mm-hmm. which, again, at that time, people were yeah. not okay with. Um, and I said at the, at the top of the story, women couldn't drink in public in Mexico. So for her to go into a cantina and like have a bottle of tequila on stage, it like it was like the first time women had seen this, done this, men didn't know what to think of her, uh, but it just kind of became part of her act and no one really bothered her because the music she was producing was really great. Um, So one quote that I found, it says, in legend, she became identified with the star-crossed, broken-hearted, hard-drinking heroine of one of her last hit songs, La Tequileria. So even her music was sometimes about drinking Mm -hmm. and like female independence. She was born in the wrong time. Yeah. So what, one of the first articles I found when I was researching her um, was an article, and the title was called The Janis Joplin of Mexico. Oh. Um, and they made quite a few comparisons between these two musicians. Uh-huh. So like I said, uh, Lucha, much like Janis Joplin, performed with a liquor bottle in hand and often made stage references to her rowdy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, she was also the first female mariachi lead singer. Um, which made her kind of the talk of the town. Every gossip publicist wanted to write about her, wanted to see her shows, which happened a lot to Janis Joplin when she was like up and coming. Everyone wanted to know more about her mm-hmm. and kind of wrote maybe untruths even just to make it sound more dramatic than yeah. it was. Um, and so she had a lot of negative press. People um, trying to sell the papers. Yeah. In 1934, she did get married to her second husband, uh, producer Felix Martin Cervantes. Again, another very short marriage, and it's often attributed to her lifestyle. He just couldn't handle all of the press and the drinking and the music, and Mm -hmm. so they broke up. Um, Lucha Reyes broke many barriers um, for women in Mexico um, because what she did was traditionally male. Um, she's known to have revolutionized the entire mariachi world by making the lead vocalist the center of attention versus the instruments the center of attention. Mm-hmm. And um, like she had been when she was younger, she was often invited to do live radio performances. Um, and she was also invited in, I didn't write the year, but I want to say it's, it's definitely in the 1930s. Um, to perform at the inauguration of the president of Mexico. Oh, wow. Inaugurated. Uh, and she earned the nickname La Reina de la, los Mariachis, or the Queen of Mariachi. Um, it's so weird, because I'm, like, thinking about it now, and I feel like ma- like mariachi bands are still very much male-dominated. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a woman... In any of the mariachi bands that I've like seen at right. restaurants or wherever, you know. Yeah, I don't know 
how many people followed in her footsteps, but it's a bummer. They yeah. should have. <laughs> However, um, all of these triumphs that she had in the right. 1930s didn't really do enough to cure her of her depression. And much like Janis Joplin, alcohol became her downfall. Oh, no. Um, so while Janis Joplin was 27 when she died uh, of a combination of heroin and alcohol in 1970, Lucha Reyes managed to survive a little bit longer. Um, she was 38 when she took her own life on June 25th of 1944 by washing down 20 barbiturates with a bottle of tequila. Oh, that's so tragic. I know. Uh, at the time of her death, she was married for a third time to a pilot named Antonio Medina. But she had her demons. Yeah. Um, okay, so one quote that I thought was really great. Um, this is from like an associate professor of like Latino studies at Cal State. Wrote that before the Bravio style of Lucha Reyes. Traditionalists thought that women could only sing in private, at get-togethers with family or friends, at church, or while they did their daily chores. After Reyes, it was more acceptable for women to sing corridos or ranchero songs in private or in public without automatic or permanent social stigma. Good. So. She, she did some she good. She did. For, yeah. In, like, her short life, she still accomplished a lot of things yeah. um, for women. Yeah. Uh, so today, in many articles, uh, Lucha is remembered for her wild attitude and kind of brash performances. But historians are really trying to shift that narrative and show how monumental her achievements were in the mariachi field, as well as just for women in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you'll see like a lot of stories where they call like her, her behaviors, like possible myth. Like no one really knows what she was like. Right. Um, because there aren't like true documents to prove like what her behavior was like. Right. Um, she does today. She's remembered, remembered in America by a statue in East Los Angeles, um, which is a city that she's visited and performed in many times during her career. The statue is located in Mariachi Plaza in East L.A., um, which is a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood that she performed a lot in when she was here. Yeah. It's nice that she has people that remember her, you know? Yeah. And that statue is relatively new. I think it went up in, like, 2006. Oh, cool. So it wasn't, like, I mean, you know, many, I guess it would have been, I think they did it for her 100th birthday. Oh, wow. I think it is 2006. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's the story of Lucha Reyes. Um, It's sad, though. I mean, it's, like, it's awesome that she was able to kind of break these barriers, but it's, you know, sad that she... I know. Had her demons and couldn't quite win. I know. And I, I, when I was sitting and trying to decide what story to do, I was like, do I tell this tragic story where alcohol is kind of the devil? But alcohol can be the devil in a lot of stories, and it doesn't negate... The good she did. Right. And like, the, the things she accomplished. And, you know, I think as an alcohol history podcast, like, sometimes we do have to highlight the bad side of it. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, so, I have a couple sources. I did use Wikipedia today, but let me tell you, I found an error on Wikipedia. Oh, <gasps> oh calling out the people <laughs> source. So, there are actually two famous singers named Lucha Reyes. 
One is the one I told you about today from Mexico in the uh-huh. 1920s, 1930s. Then there's one in the 1950s to 70s from Peru. Okay. And every time you search up the Mexican Lucha Reyes, the pictures of the Peruvian Lucha Reyes come up. And on Wikipedia, it says Lucha Reyes, Mexican singer, and it's a giant-ass picture of the Peruvian woman. No! It's like, and they don't look alike. Like, one is black and one is Hispanic. Wikipedia and letting us down. So, I mean, I don't know how much of what I took from there is true. They were <laughs> but I did use them. Um, I also found a really great article from the UCLA library called The Biography of Lucha Reyes. And then, like I mentioned, um, that article, Lucha Reyes, the Janice Joplin of Mexico. And that was on a website called mexfiles.net. Awesome. Good story to learn about. So today, I'll be telling the story of an Australia's, Australia's, Australian <laughs> feminist. <laughs> I think Australia's is our new term. <laughs> Australian <laughs> feminist activist. There's just a lot of tongue twisting right there. A lot of is. Yeah. Uh, and her name was Merle Thornton. Merle? Yeah. Well, that's a name you don't hear very often. I know. Um, I've heard it as a male name, but I guess it's one of those, like... Gender neutral. Yeah. Like Ryan. You know, names like that. So, you will see some of the similarities between the beginnings of our stories. Okay. Uh, Because Merle is best known for chaining herself to a bar rail in Queensland, Australia. I like her already. Yep. We'll we'll find out more about that in a bit. But uh, first, I just want to give you some background on our friend Merle. Okay. So Merle was born in 1930. uh, And I didn't find a lot of information about her early life other than them saying that she had a pretty typical upbringing. Uh, She did get married and have children. However, one thing of note is that Merle graduated with a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Sydney in 1952, after which she studied philosophy as a postgraduate at the University of Queensland. And the reason this is something of note is because during her early life in Queensland, most girls left school at the age of 15. So her not only getting a bachelor's, bachelor's degree but like going on more was pretty rare for women okay so after graduating merle worked as an academic at the university of queensland within various areas she worked in philosophy government sociology and gender studies and it was during this time that she worked there in the 1960s that merle really began to get involved in feminist activism so shout out to ladies in your 30s yeah Still, you could still make a big impact. (laughs) Uh, Merle had become frustrated due to a lot of the rules that were a hindrance to women. So, for example, she and many others had to hide that she was married. She had to hide her pregnancies simply to keep her job. Uh, And Merle decided it was was time to make some changes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, At this time in Queensland, in Australia, uh, as in many other parts of the world, including Mexico, uh, (laughs) there were a lot of social double standards, as well as workplace discrimination and sexual harassment against women. So one of the double standards was that 
that public bars were prohibited to serve women alcohol. Mm. Yes. There were some ways for women to drink in public, such as lady lounges, ladies' lounges. Okay. Which kind of reminds me of snugs. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and they could drink in beer gardens, but women were often charged higher rates for their drinks than men. That's bullshit. Yep. And again, public bars were men only. Except for barmaids who could work at the public bars. They just couldn't be customers. They they could look at them and... And they could serve the men drinks in their probably cute little outfits, but they couldn't buy drinks. They drink their own beer. Yep. So on March 31st of 1965, Merle and her friend Rosalie Bogner decided enough was enough. The day before, I guess on March 30th, they had gone to see the minister to get him to change this legislation about women not being able to drink in public. Uh, And they were laughed at just because they believed that women should be able to relax and drink and socialize with their friends like men. They were laughed at. Rude. So, in an interview with ABC Australia, not not the ABC in America, uh, Merle was quoted as saying, One of the things that appalled me when I first came to Queensland was seeing the women standing on the footpaths waiting around for the men to come out of the bars in Queensland suburbs. I think this is an intolerable situation. Uh, And in another quote, she talks about that and how she would see women with, like, their kids in pajamas just waiting outside the bar for their husbands to leave. Because they couldn't, like, go inside. It sounded ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, In another interview, Merle said, It was extremely irritating that it was called the public bar because clearly it was universally understood that it meant women weren't members of public society. They were only members of domestic society. And that was really the core of the complaint. But also, just to top it off, it was actually illegal for women to be served with liquor in the bar. That's crazy. Yeah. And so, on that day, on March 31st, armed with some chain and some padlocks, the two women walked into Brisbane's Regatta Hotel and ordered a drink. Uh, now, the Regatta Hotel was chosen for a reason. It was this, It was in proximity to both ABC Studios, uh, and the University of Queensland, which was where she worked. Okay. Uh, they were hoping for quick news coverage, which they definitely got, uh, and also getting word to their university. Because uh, their university was kind of where this idea had originated. I feel like a lot of like progressive movements start in oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, In an interview with the Brisbane Times, Merle described her inspiration for the protest while working at the university. She said, the women academics became very irritated because we were so few. We might have been the only women in a meeting or a conference in their discipline, and they could not adjourn to the bar with the men. Men had to make a conscious decision to sit in the ladies' lounge, or they had to drop the woman, or the women had to shrink away. One of the other women used to joke, we should chain ourselves to the bar. And I was just the only one who didn't think it was a joke. Wow. So when the bartender at the regatta refused to serve them, as they assumed he would, the two took that seed of an idea and in fact chained themselves to the foot rail under the bar. 
Um, so if you're trying to picture what that is, like if you're sitting at a bar top, right, on a stool, you know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. There's like usually like a metal bar towards the bottom, like if the stools are too high up so you could rest your feet on them. Yeah. So that's what they changed themselves to. I actually have a picture of them, uh, and we can post it, obviously, but you can see these are the two lovely ladies here, okay. and you can see the they their changed. ankles chained to the, the little foot okay, They were going thing. nowhere. Nope. So, of course, once they locked themselves in, the police were called, uh, and after about an hour of pleading with them, the police asked for a hammer, which they used to sma smash the padlock on the chain. So now with the chain removed, they asked the women to leave again, and they still refused. Of course. They continued to stay for hours, even under the threat of arrest. And though the par bartenders continued to refuse them service, there were some sympathetic men there that would order, like, beers for themselves and then give it to the women so that they could drink at the bar. After a while... And that was allowed? I, probably not really allowed, but... Okay. Just curious. But, you know... They were, they were trying to help them out. Um, so after a while, the police simply gave up pleading with them. Uh, in an interview after the event, Merle said, eventually he, the last officer of the scene, said, so long, girls, have a good night, don't drink too much. So we seem to have established that police were not prepared to enforce the laws against women in public bars. And then armed with this knowledge that it seemed that women wouldn't actually be penalized even though it was against the law, uh, others soon began to follow in their footsteps. Yes. <laughs> she said, in a way, the change took place that night when the police refused to pursue the matter when it was clear we wouldn't be leave voluntarily. She also said, news would come through to us from various places like Townsville or down on the wares. I don't know if I said that right. Mm -hmm. Saying, Mary or Anna or whoever refused to get out of the bar last night, stayed for the whole evening and had a terrific time. A week later, Merle even launched another protest, which was a pub crawl through Brisbane with her friends. <laughs> I love them. Yeah. She was just like, I'm doing this. Yeah. We are drinking in public. You can join us or... Right. And other women started to follow an example, which, yes. Yeah. Um... So while these women were often met with support, there were, of course, others who had a different reaction. Of course. Uh, not only were Merle and her friend accused of neglecting their children, which was a completely unfound accusation and one that, of course, men going out drinking never got. Right. Uh, they also received death threats and hate mail, accusing them of being communist and doubting their morality. Many men, of course, also gave people their unwanted opinion about the matter. Um, so there was one MP who was a labor member for Sandgate named Harold Dean. Har Harold Dean. He doesn't deserve for me to pronounce his name right. Um, he said, The prestige of womanhood is too high and too valuable and too precious to be destroyed by a vulgarism. I don't think it's a place for women to be. And the liberal justice minister at the time, Peter Del Delamont, was quoted as saying, they're not suitable places for the gentler sex to make a habit of frequenting. In my view, and in the view of most thinking males, we still regard them as the gentler sex that we should protect. Wow. 
I know. <laughs> Double blah. Uh, let's move on from those sexist quotes and <laughs> back to honoring Merle because this event is still to this day considered a pivotal movement in the Australian women's liberation movement. Or, sorry, a pivotal moment in the Australian women's liberation movement. The protests marked the beginning of the second wave feminist action in Brisbane. Uh, Australian historian Kay Saunders says, when you use the term second wave, it actually started in Brisbane. Merle herself said of the historic event, what we did at the regatta represented an idea whose time had come. It was the idea of ending the confinement of women to the private domestic world. She also said, it became clear we had enough support to clean up some of the more outrageous discriminations against women. And so she did. Uh, she went on to found the Equal Opportunities for Women Association in Brisbane, where she led a success successful campaign for the removal of the marriage bar in the Commonwealth and State Public Services in 1966. The marriage bar being what I talked about at the beginning, where women were restricted like their employment was restricted if they were married, which was so stupid because why is not being married any hindrance to their work? Right. Uh, Merle also established the first women's studies course in Queensland in their sociology department in 1973. And most importantly to our story, in March of 1970, five years after she changed herself to the bar, Section 59A of the Liquor Act was Liquor Act was repealed, allowing women to drink in public bars. Woo! Woo! In 1970, that's not that long ago. No, I, it's really not. <laughs> it's so wild. Um, so let's jump forward in time, 50 years after the protest, because to honor the 50th anniversary, women were invited to gather for a ladies' lunch at the Regatta Hotel, the scene of the protest, okay. to celebrate the 50th anniversary. Merle, of course, was in attendance, still a badass lady, uh, and she holds no ill will towards the bar. She said the Regatta refused because it was illegal to serve us. You can't altogether, you can't altogether be very nasty to a hotel that was following the law. And honestly, the hotel seems to kind of appreciate what Merle did because not only did they celebrate with this luncheon, they, they have a cocktail named after her. They have a cocktail bar named after oh. her. Mer <laughs> it's Merle's bar. Wow. She gets the whole bar, not even just a drink. That's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, and of course, they always treat the icon herself to all the drinks she deserves. Uh, she was quoted as saying, I'm prepared to pay, but they rarely ask me. All those drinks that. she was denied, she got. Um, I actually saw a video of her and her daughter at the bar. Uh, and she was just still, she was like in her 80s, still drinking a beer, hanging out at the bar. They removed the foot rail because I guess they like lowered the bar so you don't have like hanging feet. And she said she was really sad when they removed it because it was like a symbol of, you know. Yeah. But she's still thriving. She's, awesome. she's still doing her thing. Um, when asked if it felt like 50 years had really passed, Merle responded by saying, yes, yes, it does. Society has changed quite a lot. One of the extremely good things about the bar demonstration was that it revealed there was a substantial level of support among women in particular, but also among some men for opposing the unfairness to women and the failure to recognize adult women as members of the public. Mm. And of course, there are still many strides to be made in terms of women's rights all around the world. 
but a big step was taken by our girl Merle, and hopefully stories like hers can continue to inspire women going that. forward. Yeah. It's a pretty cool lady. Yeah. So my sources for the story were a little bit of the people source, Wikipedia, although now I'm very doubtful of them. <laughs> I really didn't get very much from them. It was like some very basic facts. Uh, and then two articles from ABC News in Australia, which were Why Was Queensland's Banned on Women Drinking in Public Bars Lifted by Jessica Van Vonderen. Uh, and then Regatta Pub Protest, Merle Thornton, who changed herself to a Brisbane bar returns 50 years on by Isabella Higgins. Uh, then an article from the Brisbane Times called, called Merle Thor Thornton, Thornton remembers Regatta Hotel protest 50 years on by Cameron Atfield. And then lastly from the CourierMail.com, Merle Thornton has cocktail bar named after her at Regatta Hotel after Act of Defiance in 1965 by Rose Brennan. Nice. And that's, that's Merle. She's pretty cool. She is. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you learned something new this week. For pictures from this week's story, follow us on social media at a tap on the wrist. And if you have story ideas or want to drop us a message, send us an email at tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. Until next time. Cheers. cheers.